0: Turn with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. You know, we've been in Matthew, learning about the king, the kingdom, learning about discipleship, learning how to live as a disciple in Jesus' kingdom that is in a world, that is in a world that is not always friendly to him. We talked about that last week, and this week we get to turn to the topic of repentance. As we do, let me start us here, let me tell you a story. Pastor and scholar Dan Doriani tells the story of an airline executive, the CEO of a popular airline. Once the airline was facing bankruptcy and the CEO was sent in to negotiate a deal. He worked out a deal with, the, uh, with all the various unions, like the pilots union, the in-flight stewardess union, the mechanics union, and he negotiated an across-the-board pay cut that would save revenue and save the company. All was good until it was leaked that it was not actually an across-the-board pay cut. What happened? Any guesses? The CEO got quite the bonus for doing a good job of negotiating the pay cuts. Everyone was furious, the unions felt betrayed. The CEO came forward, offered an apology, resigned shortly thereafter, and was given a severance package of a paltry $1.6 million. Now my question as I hear that story, I imagine it's your question too. I see some grins and some heads shaking. The question is this, was his apology really sincere? right? Like when politicians do this, when pastors get caught, we always wonder, is the apology sincere, right? Like, does that make sense? What we're really asking is this, did that person really repent? You see, repentance is a word that's not popular to use today. It's fraught with a little bit of peril. Why? Why? Because when we hear the word repent, we think of pastors in white suits on TV with too much money We think of fanatics at football games, holding up signs calling people to repent. But when we dig into the Bible, when we learn what biblical repentance is, we see that it is a beautiful thing. We see that it's a really good thing. It sweetens your relationship with the Lord. Why, how? You see, we all have areas where we don't measure up. We all have things about us that we don't like and we wish would change. If I know anything about life in a church, I know this. There is always sin hiding out there. There is always sin hiding in here. And the vehicle of repentance gets that baggage out, and it gets it offloaded. It's a beautiful thing. You draw near to the Lord. You know him better. So as we learn about repentance, let's turn to the ministry of John the Baptist, and let's see what lessons we can learn. Go with me to Matthew chapter 3. Let's read the text together. Verse 1. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptizing him by, excuse me, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Grace Church, this is the word of the Lord, and it is written to us in love love and for our good. Now, what do we need to learn about repentance? How are we gonna divvy up this text? Here's where we're going this morning. It's just two movements, not really two points, two movements. First, we're gonna learn what repentance is, what it looks like. And second, we're going to learn how to go about living lives of repentance, just to go ahead and prepare you. The first part's going to be about like this. The second part's going to be more like that. So it's not like an even Stephen. So just brace yourselves, prepare yourselves, but repentance, what it looks like, repentance, how we do it. Let's go to what it looks like. Let's go to what it looks like. Go with me to verse one. Verse 1, before we get to repentance, we need to clear a couple of bases. We need to clear two in particular. First base we need to clear is this. Who is John? Who is John the Baptist? Other than having a great name, who is this guy? John was a little bit of a roughneck. John, I mean, let's just put it out there. The guy had some redneck in his system, right? I mean, the dude ate bugs. He wore a camel hair getup. He looked like his best friend was either Crocodile Dundee or Davy Crockett. The man walked around with swollen, pockmarked forearms. Why? Because he had a sweet tooth and cookies had not been invented yet, so he got honey and he got it the hard way, sticking your hand down into a rock, reaching around and scooping it out and then munching on it, right? Not the guy, ladies, you bring home for dinner with the parents. Could you imagine John in New York City today? Like, let's think about this guy riding the subway. What would he do? He would randomly walk up to Wall Street investors, TV executives, LGBTQ activists, the NYPD Blue, and and like the Mafia Dons, and tell them, hey, stop sleeping around, stop embezzling money, stop being corrupt, knock it off, stop extorting people, and oh, by the way, here's some water, sploosh. I mean, the guy has some grit, right? This is the caliber of man that God sent to prepare the way for his son. That's base number one. What's base number two? Base number two is this. How? How did John prepare the way for Jesus? Look at verse two. He preached and he preached a message of repentance. What is repentance? We gotta get this right. We have to know what this is. We, we really got to get this right. To understand repentance, go with me to verse three. Do you see verse three? Do you see where it says that to prepare the way of the Lord, John would call people to make their paths straight. God's Messiah would come. John would be a trailblazer creating a highway that the savior would take straight into our hearts and lives. Our King Jesus gets full, unhindered, uninterrupted access into our hearts and into our lives. So what is repentance? It is a making straight. It is a clearing. It's clearing the obstacles. It's straightening the curves in our hearts that hinder Jesus' access to our hearts and to our lives. Our heart's highways can be clogged by complacency and potholed with pride. Repentance is the vehicle that clears the road. So what is repentance? Number one is this, it is a clearing. What is number two? Number two is this, repentance is also a turning. It is a turning. The word repent comes from a Greek word that means to turn. Biblical repentance is turning from sin and folly, turning from desires that are wayward, and turning to Jesus. It's not just a turning from. It is a turning to. Could we go back to the Westminster Confession of Faith? Can we go back to chapter 15 from our Confession and Assurance? It's a wonderful document, right? Like it's not on par with the Bible, but it's a wonderful document. Listen to this. Listen to how it helps us understand what repentance is. It says, understanding that God in Christ is merciful to those who repent, the sinner suffers deep sorrow for and hates his sin. And so he determines to turn away from all of them and turning to God, he tries to walk with him according to all his commandments. Do you see the turning there? Do you see the turn that is mentioned? Do you get the concept of clearing? It is clearing, it is turning, but in that definition there's something else we need to draw out about repentance and it's this. It is sorrow. There is a real sorrow that is present in repentance. I mean, look at those crowds that rallied around John, right? This is a picture of grief over sin. They gather around him to confess. We'll explore that more later. But what is the nature of that sorrow? What does that sorrow look like? How do we understand that sorrow? Let's start with what the sorrow is not. It is not the sorrow of, oh, I got caught. It is not the sorrow where we go out and we make grand displays and gestures and big promises to never do it again to other people. It is not a sorrow that stays in self-condemnation and continues to beat you up over the years. No, the main sorrow that accompanies repentance is this. I've walked away from God and I have betrayed my father and king. I have walked away from my God and I have betrayed my relationship with him. In fact, here's two helpful categories. There is worldly sorrow on the one hand. There is, anybody? Good, yes, godly sorrow on the other. There is worldly sorrow, there is godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is feeling bad that you were caught. Godly sorrow is this, Father, I've sinned against you. Godly sorrow puts you on the road to joy. Godly sorrow puts you on a real road to life change, lasting change. You see, with godly sorrow, yes, there will be slip-ups, but over time you will know undeniable progress. With godly sorrow, you'll actually ask for help from other people. With godly sorrow, you will know tears of joy as you grow and you see that your father did not abandon you, but he drew near to you and he worked to change you. He's committed to you. He's not giving up on you. With godly sorrow, you get a glimpse of just how accepted you are before heaven's throne. There is unspeakable joy in the clearing, in the turning, in the godly sorrow of repentance. Why? Why is there joy? It's because you know your Father in heaven better and you, you feel your connection to him much deeper. You get the cross at such a deeper level. You get the cross and how it proclaims that your father in heaven promises to take you back. He promises to always take you back. In fact, he has made a covenant with you that he must take you back when there is genuine godly sorrow and repentance. Pastor Jack Miller puts it this way so much better than I could. Go with me to this quote. He says, in Jesus's sacrifice, the father promises to receive contrite sinners on a daily, no hourly basis. The father must open his mighty arms and embrace every returning son. The Lord cannot resist the broken heart, which has experienced true repentance. He will not, he cannot stay away from you. He comes and he fills you with the joy of his friendship. Do you see how much it was on Jesus and not on you? Repentance drives you deeper into that dynamic and it pops praise for your savior, grace. Do you see the father's heart towards you in the gift and the grace of repentance? You know joy because you see how deep the gospel runs. I don't know about you. But when I hear it that way, it makes me wanna go look out for sin to repent of and to actually hunt it out in my system. Grace, clear your road, turn to him, and lean in to godly sorrow. But how? How do I repent? What do I do? What do my hands do? What does my mouth say? I need some help, right? Like that's always the question. Let's turn and let's answer that. Let's look at repentance and how we go about it. Let's go back to the text. Let's just look at some features of repentance. Go with me to verse five. Do you see verse five? Do you see the crowd? That crowd took off time from work, They pulled their kids out of their homeschooling co-op, their private school, or their public Hebrew school, and they went out to the desert to hear what? Repent, you're going to hell. Like that's really counterintuitive, right? Like how does that message draw a crowd? Believe you me, I wish it was that easy. (laughs) What's going on here? All of Judea, all of Jerusalem is going to hear John. He's like a celebrity. Where's the magnetism coming from? Where's the pull coming from? It is this. Our Father in heaven is convicting people of sin. He is convicting them of sin. How does he do it? Here's how he does it. He sticks his finger in your heart and he stirs. He stirs. He swirls the deep waters of your heart round and round like one of those uh, science projects in a beaker and everything just swirling. What happens in a whirlpool? What happens in a vortex? You can see down to the bottom. What the Lord God is doing when he swirls your heart is this, is he's pushing everyday anxieties, all those things that you use to suppress things, he's pushing them to the side so you can look below as if you could see the ocean floor and the shipwreck that is there. The Lord God stirs, he puts you in a place where you can no longer suppress things, you can no longer ignore that thing or stuff it off to the side. He puts you in a place where you won't be able to rationalize it anymore. It will have to be reckoned with and you know it will have to be reckoned with. Why? Because you are craving and needing forgiveness and cleansing. Have you ever known the stirring activity of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Have you ever felt the Lord's finger whirling and stirring, calling you to repent? That right there is conviction of sin. So how does repentance start? What can we do? We can pray. We can pray for conviction. We can pray for the stirring. Only God himself can create this stirring, and if only he can stir. Would we please be a church where we pray to be convicted, we pray for other people to be convicted, and we pray for all of Northwest Indiana to be stirred. That's number one. Ask him to move in your life. Ask him to move in other people's lives. What do you do after you pray? If praying is number one, what's number two? Number two is this, you own and confess your sin. You own and you confess your sin. Go with me to verse six. What is the crowd's response to John's preaching? Is it to get better life advice? Is it to get 10 steps to being a better husband? Is it how Jesus helps my mental health? No, what is their response? Their response is confession. How do we do this today? We've got to clear some bases here. I get that for some of you, that word confess is linked to your Roman Catholic upbringing and it gives you the the shivers. I get that for others of you. It may call to mind a legalistic upbringing, a rigid, churchy upbringing that was full of judgment, it was joyless, it was legalistic, it was doing the dues without none of the delight in Jesus We have to set that to the side and we have to ask this, what is biblical confession? It is this, it is this. It requires a willingness to be vulnerable and transparent. It means acknowledging and owning. I'm not as okay as I could be. You will need to be honest with yourself. You'll need to be honest before the Lord. You will need to drop your defensiveness. You're rationalizing, you're explaining. Here's one of the hardest things to do with confession, right? It's when someone sins against me and I sin in return, it is so hard to get the magnifying glass off of what they did to me and to put it on what I did to them. But that's what we have to do. Then once our hearts are in that place, we name the specific sin and we name the heart condition behind it. Father God, I said X, I wanted Y, I did Z because I wanted to get even with that person. Father, I sinned against you. That is confession of sin. Everyone's like, man, Pastor John, you keep punching me in the gut today. No, no, this this hit me too. Let's do this. Let's do this. When you confess sin, good things happen. Good things happen. When you confess sin, you start to verbalize to your God who he is, and you start to verbalize your need for him. You verbalize your pride, which helps you to fight your pride. And when you fight your pride, it keeps you from having a distorted view of yourself and a distorted view of your capabilities. It forces self-honesty. It helps you to become more aware of your shortcomings, and over time, you go, wait a minute, I'm entering into this situation. Here's a shortcoming. Whoa, let's not go down that road. It becomes a help. It becomes a preventative measure so you don't blow up. But most importantly, the benefit of confession is this. You see your need for Jesus Christ all over again, and that is the best place to be. So pray, pray for conviction, and confess. Confess to your Father. What is three? The third thing would be this. This It's gonna be a little hard. Let me just go ahead and say it. Number three is this. You may need to receive hard words. You may need to receive hard words. Go with me to verse seven. Look at what John says in verse seven. You brood of vipers. He just said, you son of a viper. Can I say that? Is that faithful to the text? That's what he just said. He just likened them to Satan. He said, who warned you to flee? (laughs) He's like, you're not welcome here, (laughs) right? He gives them a hard word. And who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? Oh, they're the important people. They're the pretty boys. They're the rich kids. They've got the influence. They've got the clout. They've got the standing in society. They're the spiritual gurus. And do you see how no one is exempt from a hard word? Now, we've got some talking to do here. Hard words create soft hearts, but soft words create hard hearts. Can we embrace that? Can we embrace that? And let's also also give another caution out there. This is not a license for you to go around just blasting people and poking fingers in chest. That is not what I am saying, no. Other Bible passages are clear. We give an account of careless words, and we are to build up so how do, we, how do we go about this? How do we do this? How about we distinguish between a hard word and a harsh word? A hard word is a last resort where the person has not listened to reason, they will not engage, they are willfully stubborn, and so you just have to give it between the eyes. A harsh word is tearing that person down. It's getting even. It's giving vent to your anger. We are not called to harsh words, but we are called at times to give hard words. How do you know when to give a hard word? You know it when it's a last resort and it's the only tool left. Is that fair? Can I see some north, south, or east, west? Is this good? Is this helpful? Is this healthy? All right. So we pray for conviction. We confess sin and we receive hard but not harsh words. What's number four? Number four is this. True repentance means bearing good fruit. Bearing good fruit. John is clear. Go to verse eight. Go to verse eight. John is so crystal clear here. He calls us to be convicted of sin, to be awakened of sin, to turn from the sin, and to turn towards good fruit. When we are awakened to sin, our actions really do change. We bear good fruit. What does that mean, and what does that look like? Let me just fire hose you with some examples. What I'm trying to do is paint a picture and then you take what applies or you take that and you paint your own picture. That's what we're doing. So watch this. Are you repenting of lust or pornography? Well, then some kind of web blocker, some kind of online accountability, having someone receive an email of all the websites you visit, that is what repentance could look like. Are you repenting of a drug or an alcohol addiction? What does repentance look like? It may mean finding a new route home so you don't go by your dealer, you don't go by the old liquor store and you stay away. Are you repenting of anger? You may need to write down what's making you angry and assess it in the light of scripture and pray over it before you turn and blast somebody. Here's one that's common to this region. Do you need to repent of a black and white mentality where you're cynical of people jump to conclusions and see them in the worst possible light? What does repentance look like? It means learning to ask at least five questions before you render a judgment. It means getting to know that other person and seeing the world through their eyes before you jump to a conclusion and accidentally slander them or bear false witness about them. Here's another one that I think goes under preached. Do you need to repent of a fear of conflict? We are such a conflict adverse society. We don't go to each other, we go to lawyers repentance may look like. Getting a mediator's help and getting that person to help you confront another person in a productive way so it doesn't simmer and that other person can receive God's lesson for them. These are just some ways that repentance can look like. Don't forget, repentance is a turning. You are not just turning from the bad fruit you used to do, you are turning to Jesus and the good fruit he would have you bear. Here is the fifth and final thing that we need to do in repentance. It is this, we need to search our hearts. We need to search our hearts. You see, repentance is not just about external conformity to a standard. It's not about white knuckling yourself and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and making yourself more holy. Practicing righteousness is important, but repentance runs deeper. It gets at our false belief, it gets at our false sense of security, and it gets at our false sense of identity. Watch. Go with me to verse 9, go with me to verse 10. What's there in verses 9 and 10? Look at those words from John. What's going on with these Pharisees and Sadducees? And by the way, (laughs) they've just begun to be blasted. They are going to get blasted throughout Matthew's gospel. And sometimes you're like, oh, guys, you're never going to win, are you? They are a cautionary tale of a route that we should not pursue. All right, let's get back to John. Do you see how John is calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees away from a false gospel a false salvation? He is saying this, being born into Abraham's chosen line, being born into your Jewish culture is not what saves you. That was never what saved you. It cannot save you. And God in heaven is not interested in a family tree that does not bear fruit. Moreover, this false belief, this false gospel produced pride and haughtiness in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This false sense of security caused them to think they were more important than they really were. It caused them to think that they were the privileged ones, that they had power. It caused them to be haughty and miss that the Savior was there, and this is the crowd that's actually going to kill Jesus. What do you see? where a false sense of security, a false salvation can take you. They would act however they wanted and then think it was okay because they're covered by their birth, their physical birth into Abraham's family. They had a false sense of security flowing from a false sense of what saved them. How you are saved and how you live is always linked together. John says, no, that won't work. You are still just a tree, and the ax will be laid to your roots. You've got the wrong roots, so you've got the wrong grounding. You're drawing from the wrong source of water, and now your life is a trunk, branches, and limbs that produce the wrong fruit. You too, Pharisees and Sadducees, are under judgment. We have to get this, especially if we're raised in the church. We have to understand this. Is it Jesus that we cling to? Or is it our upbringing? Is it our churchiness? Is it our external actions? You see, the thing that you really live for, the thing that you think is what makes you okay, that thing that you really think you need, that is the thing that really will chart your life's actions. You can love Jesus, read your Bible, but if you crave popularity and acceptance, you will do whatever it takes to serve and to get that that popular status, or to feel accepted. If you crave financial freedom, you will compromise and cut corners. You will work yourself to death of getting too many hours, working too many side jobs, and it will be to your detriment and the detriment of your loved ones. If you crave love or romance, you will give your body away at some point or you will become the clingy one in the relationship Why? Because you will pay whatever price it takes to get love. Do you see how the turning of repentance has to run deeper than just cleaning and polishing the outside? It's got to get down to the root. It's got to, we've got to see, we've got to search our hearts with the Holy Spirit's help. And we've got to see the inner rot. We've got to see what our root system is really connected to so that we can unplug from that and plug into the pure living water of Jesus Christ. Only then will it, excuse me, only then will it renovate and renew your core. Then you will know change from the inside out. We need our false sense of self, our false sense of security exposed. So in repentance, we must get to the heart. So what do we do, Grace? We pray for conviction we confess sin, what's next? We may need to receive a hard word. We bear good fruit and we get to the heart. There's one final thing that we need to say, and it is this. Repentance points you to King Jesus. It points you to King Jesus. Go with me to our last two verses, verses 11 and 12. What does John mean here? Right? Like what's all this winnowing talk? What's all this talk of baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire? What's going on here? What John is saying is this. At one point in human history, Jesus will baptize and give you the Holy Spirit. And then another time he will come and he will baptize with the fires of judgment. What John is saying is this. To avoid that and to receive this, you cannot look to me. I can only take you so far. I am the one who just prepares the way for the one. I can make you aware of your need to repent, and you can feel a real need for change. You may feel the flames of hell licking at your feet, but I cannot forgive. You cannot hope in me. You cannot hope in the fact that you are turning. Do not look to those things. No, you're looking to the wrong thing. John says there is one who is coming who will do for you what I cannot, who will do for you what you cannot. This coming king will secure your forgiveness. He will forgive you. He will redeem you. He will cleanse you. He will adopt you as his own. He will continue to call you to repent so that you can look and live more like him. He will create a forever home with you in your heart, and he will build a forever home with you in the halls of heaven. He is gathering his wheat that which is valuable to him. He is the one whom you are really longing for. You do not want me. I'm a sinner too. I have to repent as well. I'm not even worthy to do what a household servant would do for the king, and that's to carry his muddy sandals. Go to the king and not to me when he comes instead. That will complete the work of repentance done in you. You will only be complete when you turn and turn to him. And when you do, when you go to him, you will get something so much better than my baptism of water. Instead of having water poured over your head, his Holy Spirit will dwell within your heart. He, the Holy Spirit, is the one who unites us by faith to Christ. He is the one who changes hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. He is the one who takes all that Jesus has won for us and makes it true of us. Then and only then will his fire no longer be judgment or wrath to you. No, you will not be chafed to burn away into nothingness. You will be gathered into his storehouse as his wheat and as his valuable possession. His fires will not be judgment. They will not be wrath. His fires will be warmth and comfort. His fires will be light and illumination. His fire will be cleansing and purging, and you will stand in his fire no longer being burnt, but purified and refined. Have you been baptized into King Jesus's family? Has he baptized you with his Holy Spirit? If you have, isn't it a wonderful thing? Doesn't it give you cause for celebration? If you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, then let his fires keep burning your sin away as you go out and fight sin and engage in repentance. If you have not, turn, turn. His winnowing fork really is in his hand. Turn to him and live. Know him as Savior and then go out and live out this kingdom hallmark, the hallmark of repentance as you go into this week. Amen, Grace? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we all have business to conduct with you. Father God, these are hard words. Father, we mention things that, that, that many people tell you not to talk about in a sermon. Hellfire, damnation, wrath, and judgment. Yet, Father, that is a part of you. Jesus is come and he is coming to divide. Father, please let this word sink deep into our hearts. Father, not just to avoid condemnation, no. Although that is true. Father, help us, help us to repent so that we can know the joy and see the freedom that you give us at the cross. Father, may this be true of us and may it sink deep. We love you, we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. (laughs)